This is Tennessee Talks with United States Congressman Tim Burchett. I'm Congressman Tim Burchett, and welcome to the first episode of Tennessee Talks. I look forward to sharing my opinions on current issues and events, and after I give my take on those issues, I'll discuss the topic with a guest. On today's show, I'm going to talk about the wild inflation grip in our country. Pete DeBus, CEO of the Royal Industries, will then join me to discuss how the current economy is impacting his business. With that, let's dive into the record levels of inflation hurting our country. As we all know, inflation was really just a tax on everybody. It, um, it affects you everywhere you go. There was some worthless bureaucrat said earlier uh, in the month that inflation wasn't going to really affect working people. Um, they wouldn't really notice it, but rich people really would. I think that's completely bogus and opposite. If you go to the grocery store, food's up 5%. You go buy a suit, clothing, of course, up over 4%. The one that really hits us all is gasoline. It's up over 49% this year, 49%. Electricity is up over 6%. Utilities are up over 28%. And also you got to remember heating fuel. And we don't really think about that much in East Tennessee, but in some areas it is, but uh, we do. But um, all over the, the more colder parts of the country, heating fuel is a really big issue and it is up considerably. Transportation service up over 4%. New vehicles up over 9%. I'd say that's a lot higher than that. Used cars are up over 26%. It's all, it all, it, it hits every aspect of our life, folks. And we got to ask yourself, why is this happening? Well, first of all, the broken supply chain, low, low supply. We've seen this. You've seen the tankers, the pictures of the tankers out on our coasts. I've talked to my friends in California and colleagues, and they say, Burchett, you just wouldn't believe it, the number of tankers that are out there, and um, uh, well, I call them tankers. They're huge supply ships. I guess technically tankers is for oil, but they are, they're, they're not able to unload. It's um, We've got now we're talking about the unions are going on strike out there, and there's high consumer demand, and there's not enough folks that are working that will fill those jobs that need to be filled. I was at the Crystal the other night on Emory Road, and I pulled up, and that guy they had a sign in the window that said, after midnight – Crystals, you know, we, we are closed because we can't get people to work. I was thinking, that gum, man, that's when they do most of their businesses, <laughs> from midnight to three. But, um, you know, and they've also created these barriers for uh, to work by these vaccine mandates. And they've been repeatedly kicked down by the federal courts. The president enacts them through some executive order. We try to pass some bogus law, and they're, they're thrown out as unconstitutional. And this is all causing the cost of business to go up. It's out-of-control spending in Washington, deficit spending. Uh, we're spending trillions of dollars, and, uh, and, there's, and, it's, and there's, there's nothing funding. It is, it is unfunded, whereas there is nothing, there is no mechanism created to pay for these things. So what are we doing? We're borrowing it. We're deflating, further deflating the value of our dollar. And, of course, increased government regulations, which makes it tougher on the mom and pops. The big major corporations, with the, which the Democrats say they're against, they're actually just helping them because they just, they just put another nickel on a bag of French fries or something like that and just pass it on to us. But the mom and pops, they have to eat it. And a lot of times they're going out of business. I've talked to a restaurant owner in Knoxville, Tennessee, in East Knoxville, and he told me, he said, you know, we're only be able to open just a few days a week because we can't get product. And he said, 
if this keeps up, I'm going to have to close the business. And as a family business, it's been in operation since the 70s. Um, so you got to ask yourself, what can we do to fix the problem? We got to reject this big government spending plan that President Biden keeps pushing forward. We've got to reject it. We've got to get products moving through the economy again. We got to get Americans back to work. We can't keep paying people not to work. I know what you're going to say. Uh, if, you know, these people aren't receiving unemployment. Well, there's people, we paid people not to work during COVID and it set a precedent and it's, uh, and it's a bad precedent. We've got to also abandon these radical regulations that target businesses. As I stated before, the small business, the ones that, that have to suck it up and they just pass it on to us. The big businesses can spread it out a little easier over the, the, um, the United States. So, those are just some of my random thoughts on on inflation and um, and where we're headed. And thank y'all so much for joining me on my inaugural podcast. Joining me now is Pete DeBusk, chairman and founder of DeRoyal Industries. Pete started DeRoyal in 1973 after he invented the orthopedic boot. I'm sure everybody's seen those or had to wear one. An important technology that helps folks recover from foot injuries. Under Pete's leadership over the last four decades, Doral became a leading manufacturer of various medical devices and serves customers across the world. Today, his business employs 1,900 folks who are committed to meeting healthcare needs and developing innovative medical technologies. Pete is also heavily involved with the Lincoln Memorial University in Harrogate, helping start the LMU DeBus College of Osteopathic Medicine, and I was actually there on the on the introduction. And Pete gave the the best speech of the whole thing. They had all the everybody up there speaking, and all the bureaucrats, all the politicians. And Pete said, "This thing's gone on long enough. I'm going to introduce my family, and we're going to cut this ribbon." And I've always remembered that. That was that's sort of been my thing at, at ribbon cuttings. And of course, the LMU John J. Duncan School of Law, which is in Knoxville. And Pete, welcome to Tennessee Talks, and thank you so much for joining the show. All right, Pete. Sam, I'm glad to be here. Thank you, brother. I want to tell listeners about DeRoyal Industries and what's the story behind how it started. I know you and I have talked about it, how you started in your garage. And I want to know how you grew your company to be so successful. And I and let folks know I, I've walked around I've walked around LMU with Pete and I've walked around DeBusk. I mean, I, I'm sorry, I walked around um, the Royal Industries many times, and you always call people by their names, and, uh, and and people like that, and they don't, and when I talk to, especially country folks, they don't say, I don't, they don't ever say I work for the Royal, they said I work for Pete, and uh, and I dig that about you, Pete, so if you'd talk a little bit about how that, how it all got started, and, and where it's headed. Okay, well, I'll, um, I'll try to give you uh, an overview without boring you to death. Um, but really, in 1973, um, I got I, I was working for a company uh, putting out uh, the first fiberglass casting material, and that's where I got the idea from: is to build a little boot, what have you, that would would take and um, cushion uh, the impact when uh, the patient that had a cast on took a step. It'd be more comfortable. It would be much safer. It doesn't elevate the the, the hip, et cetera, et cetera. Anyhow, I won't go through all that, but it turned out to be a, a real, really needed product. And from that, what I did, uh, I got a little more confidence. Uh, remember, I'm working out of the back of a car. 
And I'm selling my products all up through the Appalachians to these clinics, hospitals, and stuff. And I got a little more confidence. And then I decided I could make another product. And it was went well. And then I made another one. And so uh, my ego began to run pretty good then. And, uh, of course, uh, uh, back then, things were really developing. And here's something really important to know about the history. In the early 60s, that was actually the beginning of disposable pre-sterile product because we didn't realize that we were infecting a lot of people when they went into the hospital. And really, uh, a lot of people died from those infections. It was just, it was just a, a wake-up time in America that, hey, look, uh, we're we're doing it to ourselves. So we started the whole thing broke open with disposable sterile products. And the first one was Becton Dickinson with a needle and syringe. And from that it just it just really took off with prepackaged sterile products. And on the early end, what gave me my real opportunity not only the things that i thought of and picked up in many of the hospitals but also the fact that there was little companies coming along who had a product and they had no idea how to write a marketing plan a sales plan uh, how to set up manufacturing and stuff like that so i got into the business of, of of helping these little companies get started and as a part of that, I would um, I would get a commission and a, a territory in the country that I'd have an exclusive on. And then I would go on later and I bought a lot of those little companies that I helped get started as I began to get more cash in the company. But it just continued to grow. And uh, uh, I had a son, Brian, that was going to Vanderbilt. He was wanting to be a, a PhD and, a, and an MD too. And he got his PhD and I says, you know, you really need to come home and help me run this company. This thing is running wide open and, uh, and it, it's awful valuable to us. And, uh, and I need the help. So he did. And I, we decided we couldn't do business as usual that we were going to have to go out and start buying little companies. And to the best of my knowledge, I bought 40-some of these little companies and brought them in-house and rolled them into the Royal Industries, which makes up the Royal Industries today. But <clears throat> that is that is the way I got started. A few things to, to ring home. Um, one of the next patents I got of the many was a patent on and a a transfer sheet for a burn patient and it had to be strong enough to lift the patient <clears throat> because the you can imagine when a patient's burned uh, the skin is just burned off the patient and sure. and uh, it's it's just a Tim it's just a well I, I won't get in details but I come out with that product and really the forerunners of all the neomobilizers a lot of those products I didn't patent because I didn't have enough money to patent right. in the early days. L let me ask you about that patent uh, issue. I I served with a guy named Thomas Massey out of uh, 
Kentucky. He's went to MIT. I guess he couldn't get in LMU. I'm not sure, but he um, he's got I think a twenties twenty some odd patents. And uh, uh, every year he has me come to this symposium because I'm a I'm a closet inventor and I'm always interested in what's going on. And but he tells me that that patents are really really difficult for the average citizen to get nowadays just because of the, the bureaucracy, um, you know, it's increased and in, in that we don't have a, we're trying to get patent protection. Of course, the Chinese are always the, the uh, seems like the culprit here lately of, of stealing our ideas and, you know, where's our jurisdiction in? Is it, is it across the borders or not? And um, maybe you could address some of that, Pete, because I'm sure you have to constantly, constantly guard your patents so that somebody doesn't steal them. Well, uh, look, I, I had a plant in China one time, and I thought I owned it, but come to find out, uh, the Communist Party owned the company. I own nothing, oh. and uh, their law, their rules, of uh, uh, everything, everything I ever made, they copied just about. Yes, sir, and. Uh, there, it is worse than you can imagine, Tim. It's, it's, they have no regard for what other people do. They have a whole different set of rules they, they play by. They sign a contract with you. They don't, uh, they don't recognize contracts. Hmm. Uh, they'll sign anything you, that you want to get your business. And so it, it is a, it's a really a bad deal. I just, I started pulling out of China about twelve to fifteen years ago. And luckily, we got we we're almost completely out of China, except the fact that the raw materials, some of the raw materials, you can never get away from because, sure. as Americans, we we gave away our technology, we gave away for our manufacturing base of people to manufacture, and um, it's very it's very simple how this happened. The federal, the government, the Chinese government, like in textiles, they supplemented whatever their cost was to drive it down below the American price and just proceeded to erode the American market. And then we went out of the business. Then they had the business. They owned the business. That's the way they bought the businesses. And then they had it all, and as sometimes, excuse my language, but uh, as ignorant Americans, we sit back. Uh, we're not dumb, but we're ignorant to what is happening to us. We just don't recognize this, and uh, we sort of get lost in the shuffle of bureaucracy. And uh, it's just terrible what they've been able to do to us, and we've got to fight back. Yes, sir. I, I agree with you 100%. I, I've often said we just got to get out of bed with China. We got to maybe pay a little more, but get it back in this country and hold on to it. And this supply chain thing is, if that hasn't woken up this country, uh, nothing else will because we are um, getting ready to go into a winter season, and I'm afraid we're going to see what's what's really going to hit us. And that, that sort of segues into my next question about inflation. It seems it's a huge topic of discussion here in D.C., and it should be. I mean, gasoline's up over 40% the last six months. Um, uh, you just go down the list. Everything is up. You can't get steel. You can't get uh, 
you know, I've got this little farm out there in Corrington, as you know, and and I, um, it's got wood fences everywhere. When I first started, the wooden slats for the fence were $22. They're down to $9, but that's still high. And, um, and everything just seems to be going up. And I'm wondering, how is the current economy impacting your business? And, and what is it doing to productivity, your employment prices, and your sales? Well... Our sales is really good. Uh, we we moved a lot of our stuff back to America, and uh, well, and to the islands. Uh, they call them uh, vacant and in the economical world, the the uh, nearby islands are. Uh, I mean, they they treat it like it's America, which is a good idea. Yes, sir. Uh, but I can give you a little information today that you can really think about, and we'll take. One minute. If Medicare, if Medicare chose to take and put, do the reverse thing or something somewhat similar to what China did, if if Medicare chose to recognize American product and would, for purposes of uh, competing would give the American manufacturer a percent of credit, okay? If it's American manufacturer, then Medicare reimburses $10 for it. If it's if it's foreign manufactured in China, then Medicare would pay $9 for it. So we would do the incentive program somewhat like what China did to all of America on ever products and built this huge trade deficit. But Medicare has a lot of power with this purchasing. Here is the problem, Tim. We live from, from quarter to quarter with the stock market. Yes, sir. If a cheaper product, regardless of quality, I mean this now, regardless of quality, can be bought, bought cheaper and brought into a hospital uh, and after all that's gone on, STEM, Tim, they will still do it. Okay. It's just something you can't overcome. The fact is they're, they're going to buy a cheaper product if they can get by with it, and they soon forget about what China has done to, to us and uh, the only one people I think that have any power is the federal government and in essence doing some of what China did to us. Okay. I got you. Well, we got to play, you know, I, I've heard people say, as long as I know the rules, I can play the game. So it sounds like we need to adjust our rule book a little bit. Um, of course I know you it's not big. say that again. Actually, this is not very hard to do. No, I wouldn't think it would be. You're just going to have to get some politicians, I think, to to get out of bed with some of these foreign entities and expose them and what they're about. You know, we have a uh, we got a member of our intelligence committee that was seeing a uh, a known Chinese communist spy, and we couldn't even get him get kicked off the committee. So we we've got some real problems. I had breakfast with Secretary Pompeo a few weeks back, and. And he said in some communities, the Chinese have infiltrated down to the level of even PTA meetings they've found where they've 
put information in. And so we've, we've got a real, real problem. This country's going to have to address it. I agree with you. But let, me, let me switch gears a little bit here because we're going to run out of time, and I know you're busy, man. I know you graduated, you know, you're big with LMU, and you continue to serve LMU as you've always had. Why is that so important for you to keep giving back to LMU? I know you told me one time that you wanted a place for those folks to come out of those mountains and, and get a good education. And, uh, I, and I, I don't think people re- realize just how big and how progressive and, and how much LMU means to this community. I think it's just one of those things that, uh, you know, it's, folks always think you got to go to the, one of the major universities, and, um, and that's just not the case to get a good quality education. So if you could talk a little bit about that, Pete. And now I want you to remember, I have an LMU blue, blue and gray hat, but I also have a hat that's really orange too. Yes, sir. So, okay, really orange. And, uh, but here is what happened. I set out initially, boy, this is a good time to tell you this, Tim. I set out initially to try to get the people in the mountains an opportunity to get to go to a professional school and I knew if they could graduate from a professional school, they could go get the better jobs. Well, the level I thought I could possibly get to with that, if you multiplied that 10 or 20-fold, it would probably be more accurate. It's unbelievable how many people has poured out of the Appalachians of Virginia, Kentucky, and really Tennessee. And they poured in there and we've got them educations and people have no idea how big LMU, the medical school itself is bigger than all other, the other four schools in the state of Tennessee put together. But you got to remember, we concentrate on producing, producing family care, primary care doctors. So, Kim, they're pouring back here into East Tennessee right now as they graduate these people are coming back this way because they like Knoxville, the whole area, and and back into the Appalachians. But here's something I didn't realize. Uh, most of our students, uh, the school we get more students from than anybody else into our professional programs is the University of Tennessee, which is great. Because the University of Tennessee and Knoxville uh, there's a lot of programs that they just don't have here. Uh, many years ago, they held a lot of those in Memphis yeah. when they should have been in Knoxville. But that's politics. I don't want to go there. Uh, but what is it done here? It's really woke us up because there's a lot of programs that UT don't have that we're filling in. And we're getting a push in Knoxville, like you won't believe, like this new dental school that we're going to open up in the old St. Mary's Tower, this thing is off the charts. So now, not only we're hitting the mountain area, but this is the middle of Appalachia, too. All of a sudden, Knoxville is buying in. Our students are going to be able to go local and get these professional degrees. And uh, uh Need I say more? It's just uh, Knoxville has just really come around for us, and now we're we're really helping Knoxville uh, with professional people that could not get a degree here before. That's excellent, Pete. I can't thank you enough. I know you're busy, and I'll let you go. I've I've got 
work up here to do in D.C. as well. And I, I want to thank you, but I, I'll leave everybody with one story. I remember one time Pete called me. I was in the state legislature, and you didn't want anything, which is unusual for somebody of your stature. You just wanted to hang out. I remember we went and ate at a little little chain restaurant, and you said, I'll, I'll get us a table. Just come on over whatever time it was. And I remember I got there, and I remember you were in the back, sitting at the booth, and the little lady, I think her name might have been Ruth, I can't remember, a little country lady, which I which I love, um, she walked back there, and, and, and I thought, what in the world? And she said, Pete, what do you have? And you 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 knew her name, and you knew her family, and I, I think that's, that, 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 that is why Pete DeBus is a success, because he remembers where he came from, and he is grateful for it, but he, he gives back to those folks that are around him and they, and they feel like they know him. And so, I, I mean, I dig that about you, Pete, and I always remember that. So thank you for being my friend and thank you for being a capitalist. So uh, keep at it, Pete, and we'll be in touch. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate the opportunity. Yes, sir. Thanks for listening to this episode of Tennessee Talks. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Keep up with Congressman Burchett by following at Rep Tim Burchett on Twitter and Instagram and at Congressman Tim Burchett on Facebook and YouTube.